Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the wonderful and weird parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Drew. Oh, hi. Oh, hi. Oh, hi, Gareth. And returning for what has seemed like an age. So we've had people asking where he is, what he's been doing, how is he, is he even alive anymore? He returns finally from the ether. It's Aaron. Say hi. I'm Aaron the White. Ah, I return to you now. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) What were you before? I was Aaron the Grey. All right. I mean, well, there we go. Hello, everybody. How are you, (laughs) cupboard dwellers? (laughs) We've missed you, Aaron, and we've even had people saying as much that they've missed you. Only one. Well, only one. (laughs) Only one. (laughs) We've got at least one person who's wondering where it is. And it wasn't either of us. No, that's true. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Anyway, so is it a made-up profile? <laughs> yes, yeah. it yeah. was you asking where you were and what you were doing. Yeah, yeah, where's Aaron? No, I wouldn't anyway. put that past me. I am forgetful. Welcome back, and uh, this nice week we back. have got you bringing us a creature feature about a very large species of whale. We've got some stories about very large species of dinosaurs. Uh, and we're also going to be delving into what makes an ungulate. So uh, let's dive into the news. It's the news! Okay, we're into the news for this week. And uh, Drew's going to start us off with a, a ducking good story. <laughs> Oh, oh, hello. I'm bringing the puns. I wasn't expecting a pun so early. No one ever uh, expects the puns, but they're there. They're always there. Yeah. Hiding in the background. Not necessarily wanted sometimes, but well, <laughs> here we go. Here they are. Uh, yeah, so I've got another fun article this week uh, because we're always inundated with bad stuff. So I've picked something fun again. So guys, when you hear about birds mimicking human speech, what sort of birds come to mind? Well, minor birds. I'm going to say Mine, yeah. parrots and miners, yeah. Corvids. Yeah. Corvids yeah. are really yeah. good at it, actually. In fact, ravens are supposed to be surprisingly good at it. Mm. Well, I sense this... it's not one of these. It's not one of those. So my article is titled, You Bloody Fool, Australian Talking <laughs> Duck Can Imitate Speech. So I'm going to play an audio clip of the duck for you all, so you can get a, a good grasp of, of this duck. So you ready? Yep. Here he comes. Okay. <laughs> did did you hear that though? Yeah. Yeah, it sounded yeah. like someone in the distance saying you bloody fool. Yeah, 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 basically, yeah. It'll be clearer for everyone and everyone at home. But yeah, this is a recording of a Australian musk duck called Ripper, who was hand reared in, ha- yeah, hand reared in captivity at Tidbinbala Nature Reserve. I assume that's correct. And it's the first comprehensively documented instance of the species being able to mimic sounds they hear. 
which puts them alongside, as you guys said, parrots, corvids, lyrebirds. But yeah, Ripper was re- also recorded vocalizing the sound of doors slamming shut. I also included that in there as well. Um, <laughs> so it's not just the you bloody fool uh, vocalization that you just heard. <laughs> and <laughs> here's my favorite couple of sentences from the, from the article itself. Uh, this is on The Independent, by the way, but I did see this in a number of different places. Researchers believe uh, it was a phrase the duck heard repeatedly from his caretaker. We we're unsure how old he was when he, when he was first exposed to it. So he could well have been saying, you bloody fool, to this duck when he was underage or very young. Um, it also says he was four years old at the time of the recordings. So the duck, that is not the caretaker. And he made his vocalizations during aggressive mating displays. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. Um, and this seems like textbook serial killer upbringing. Uh, abused as a child. <laughs> abused as a child by having his keeper shout, you bloody fool, at him. And then he gets aggressive himself when he gets older. But um, a little bit further down, it says that although the recording sounds like you bloody fool, it's suspected that the duck was saying food instead of fool, which is less fun. Does that mean that, was... Does that, mean that the keeper was saying your bloody food? Well, they, they were implying that the keeper was basically just jokingly saying every time he went into the enclosure, oh, here's your, here's your bloody oh, food. Oh, here's your bloody food. Yeah, here's your <laughs> bloody food. <laughs> now, uh, this recording itself is actually, it's three decades old, but it, it's only recently been sort of dug up again and resurfaced and studied. Um, so we've actually known about this for a little while. And Ripper isn't the only must duck to make... Uh, impersonations. A second duck was recorded in the same reserve in 2000, imitating a different duck species. And mm. um, and a duck in Pensthorpe National Park in the UK has been heard coughing and mimicking a snorting pony. And <laughs> another at Slimbridge Wildfowl Trust was observed reproducing, I quote, the characteristic cough of his birdkeeper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is interesting in itself. I don't have an audio for that. Um, <laughs> Um, and also the squeak of the squeak of a turnstile. And so the article then goes someone who used to work at Slimbridge, so I should yeah. ask her. If, uh... Yeah, we'll have to ask. The article then goes on to say that Dr. Dominique Potvin of the University of the Sunshine Coast, who was not involved in the research itself, as she said that the ability of mustucks to mimic sounds was likely due to a perfect storm of factors. Uh, she said they've they have a close contact with their parent and can therefore be highly influenced by them early on in life. And musk ducks are unique in that ducklings are more uh, dependent on maternal care than other species of duck. And musk ducks, this courtship process is also unusual amongst ducks with high-pitched vocalizations likely playing a role in male-to-male competition. I would have liked to have seen fighting another male <laughs> just shouting, you bloody fool. You bloody idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it finishes by just saying that this discovery changes what was previously known about the evolution of vocal language learning in birds, because I've not heard of ducks. Uh, imitating before no. um, and the mustax talent as a mimic suggested the skill had evolved independently in multiple groups of birds hmm. um, as you guys have suggested quite a few of them uh, at the beginning on the subject of australian birds and mimicry yeah have you uh, you guys seen it came up the other week actually i don't know how recent it is but it's a lyre bird uh, i think in a zoo somewhere somewhere in australia and it's imitating a screaming child like a child oh, who's having was... an absolute screaming well, thing. Yes, I did <laughs> hear about that. Perfectly. It's, it's, uh, In fact, it's, it's right here. One. That article is right here as well. It's it's, it's linked uh, to this one. Oh, oh well, sorry, it's The has... Guardian, by the way, not The Independent. 
if it has the sound clip, it is certainly worth playing. Well, let me just I, um, load it up. During my first my first paid zookeeping job, there were two birds. Uh, there was a minor bird who was just within the entrance, really. You, you came out the entrance past some squirrel monkeys, and there's a minor bird there. And he had an identity crisis because I'd go talk to him and he'd say, well, he'd say a few things like, like hello, Charlie. And uh, uh, he was a good boy. <laughs> but he'd also say, I'm a barley starling. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where did he got the I'm from? <laughs> huh? How did he get, how did he even pick that up? Who was I'm saying, no I'm a barley starling? <laughs> I'm a barley starling. So he had an identity crisis. It's... And then further down the zoo, near where the Lima complex was, there used to be in like a bamboo setup, there used to be a, a couple parrot aviaries, like Amazons. And one of them used to, used to, I didn't know this at the time. And I'll, I'll, I'll paint the picture for you. It's early in the morning. It's it, it's on the moors, and so it's very misty. Mm. And I'm in the porcupine enclosure, like giving them their food and stuff. And and I hear a little girl crying in the bush <laughs> at like <laughs> quarter past eight in the morning. In yeah, the I winter. get out of there. It's dark, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm, the the hairs on the back of my neck stood up, and I was just like I was bricking it. And uh, I don't believe in ghosts or anything like that, but yeah, that day I did. <laughs> it was it was a parrot. He <laughs> was crying like a little girl in the bush. <laughs> well, I I think that's the perfect way of getting around not having a particular species at a zoo is you just train your uh, your your species that knows how to talk to tell yeah. people that it is in fact something different. You know that way your yeah. your uh, your Indian hill miner becomes a barley starling. Yeah. yeah, no one's going to know any better. Well, no, it's no, telling you what it is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I do think though, the acoustics of a, of a zoo is often forgotten when people deal with like zoo design and enclosure, uh, sorry, species planning and stuff like that. I think it's an important aspect. <laughs> you want to make it as creepy as possible. So <laughs> Not necessarily, but that's, that was an added bonus. give people a really, really good scare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So any luck, Drew, in finding that uh, lyrebird then? Well, I don't know. We'll let this uh, speak for itself. <laughs> oh, I didn't like that. Oh. <laughs> so um, as someone with a child, and, and Aaron, you also have a child as well, I think both of us know that scream of... Did it I set yours am, off? I am not happy. That's child? Like, that's uber ha- unhappy. I'm sorry, that, that's not a child. If that bird is mimicking something, <laughs> that's proof of banshees. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very full on. But yeah, that's, that's an impressive, an impressive yeah. mimic. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> right, well, we'll go from your, your duck imitating things to... Bloody fool. to uh, a new discovery that is well it's a new discovery of a new species of dinosaur that uh, unfortunately is being completely and utterly misinterpreted by every single newspaper possible so i've gone for the most down-to-earth logical newspaper that's been able to put you know an actual sensible article out and i'll explain why i'm I'm intrigued oh bloody well well well, well done mate yeah (laughs) well done for finding it well, yeah, it, it actually took a bit of finding. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the, from the Smithsonian Magazine. Okay. We do usually do really good stuff anyway. 
Mm. Um, and its new giant carnivorous dinosaur was a terror to small tyrannosaurs. The important thing being there that it says tyrannosaurs, not tyrannosaurus mm. or T-Rex or anything like that. Because as you'll find out in a minute, T-Rex does not feature in this article. But every other newspaper seems to want to make it feature in this article. So uh, essentially what this is about, it's about a, a new species of dinosaur that's been found in Uzbekistan. It's, I'm probably going to butcher this, I've been looking at the pronunciation for it, but it's Ulubegasaurus, uh, and it's a Carcharodontosaur, which is a mm. group of dinosaurs. Well, Carcharodontosaurus means shark-toothed lizard. So these are sharp-toothed carnivorous dinosaurs that basically ruled the Earth before tyrannosaurs did. And in fact, all around the world, we see this uh, sort of weird way of things playing out, whether it's in the UK with the Tyrannosaurid being uh, Eotyrannus and Neovenator, the uh, member of the Allosaurus family, um, being bigger than it. We see small Tyrannosaurs all throughout the world and these big Allosaur relative Carcharodontosaurids being the sort of ruling class of carnivores throughout most of the uh, the early Cretaceous period. And it's only towards the later Cretaceous period that we start seeing all of these really big tyrannosaurs replacing them and the dynamic shifting. But for a very long period of time, people have not really been able to fully understand this dynamic. This is helping to paint that picture a little bit because Ulubegosaurus is, well, basically another one of these large carnivorous Carcharodontosaurids, and it's ruling over a Tyrannosaurid. The Tyrannosaurid itself, I've never actually even heard of before. Timolengia Timolengia is quite a bit smaller than the 30-foot-long Ulubegosaurus, and is basically filling that same sort of niche that we see all over the place. So in North America, you've got Carcharodontosaurus, and you've got things like Morus intrepidus, which is the smaller Tyrannosaur. And then they eventually sort of seem to switch places and we end up with things like Gorgosaurus and Despletosaurus, Tyrannosaurus as well being the biggest of all of the Tyrannosaurs and all of the Carcharodontosaurs disappearing into the background all becoming extinct, mostly in the Northern Hemisphere. So uh, it's been described in the Royal Society of Open Science um, by the University of Tuskegee. Now, I think that's actually a Japanese university that's done the uh, the paperwork in collaboration with um, the University of Calgary as well. So I don't think it's actually an Uzbekistani paleontologist that's done the work. It's, it's um, someone from Japan um, and someone from Canada. The paleontologist, uh, Dara Zelen- Zelenskia and Koi Tanaka, so the names sort of fit quite nicely for those. <laughs> the, um, basically, it's the only dinosaur known from this area to basically fit this like large Carcharodontosaurus. Uh, and it's known from only a single upper jawbone uh, as well. So it's uh, only one fragment, but because of the uh, size and the ratio you can work out from, from that, you know, you end up with these dinosaurs being able to be worked out at roughly 30, 30 foot long. That's pretty big. Um, mm-hmm. Tyrannosaurus is 45 foot long to give you an idea of that as well as, uh, sorry, 40 foot long, no, 45 foot long, Spinosaurus is 50 foot long, and uh, Giganotosaurus, which is (laughs) still technically the largest sort of carnivorous dinosaur. Spinosaurus sort of falls into its own little group. 
is somewhere close to 46 to 47 foot long, if I remember correctly. So that is a very large member of the Carcharodontosaurids uh, and ate pretty big prey. But, yeah, so um, the article opens with, despite the fearsome reputation, Tyrannosaurus were not always the largest and fiercest carnivores of the Mesozoic world. For tens of millions of years, the earliest relatives of Tyrannosaurs lived in the shadows of these larger carnivores with serrated knife-like teeth. These predators were known as the Carcharodontosaurids, the shark tooth lizards, and it actually paints a good picture. Unfortunately, when you start going to other ones, it basically starts talking as if Tyrannosaurus was somehow dwarfed by this thing, even though this is an animal that lived 90 million years ago and Tyrannosaurus lived 66 million years ago. So these were long extinct and in a different part of the world before Tyrannosaurus even had evolved yet. But unfortunately, that doesn't tend to stop newspapers from taking well, when, the, when <laughs> taking the newspapers from printing shite. Well, that is quite true. Um, that's, but... that's the that's the first Aaron statement of the of the episode. Uh, we're we're happy to have Aaron back. <laughs> but um, so yeah, despite all of the the misinformation that some people are probably getting from some of these lesser reputable sources, and unfortunately some of these reputable sources as well, sad to say, it's actually adding to the picture of what this sort of area's uh, fauna looked like. The fossils were preserved in a formation uh, of 90 to 92 million year old rocks that had the remains of horned dinosaurs, uh, duck-billed dinosaurs, long-necked sauropods, and more. It's known as the Biscuit Formation and represents one of the best-known ecosystems in Europe and Asia at the time, uh, and Zelensky said, among the most notable finds in the geologic section are the bones of Timriolengia, a tyrannosaurid that grew to about 10 feet in length. That's roughly right. a third the body length of Ulubegasaurus. So, uh, yeah, we end up with this sort of smaller tyrannosaur living alongside this large Carcharodontosaurus. And there's still a lot of questions as to when and what happened to basically cause this sort of switch. It, you know, was it a, a, a change in prey? Was it a change in environment, you know, that led to the Tyrannosaurs basically taking over in the late Cretaceous and being the dominant carnivorous dinosaurs all throughout the Northern Hemisphere and basically becoming the ruling lizards of the, uh, the Cretaceous? So, uh, yeah, there's still a lot of questions to be answered, but it's quite cool to see a new large carnivorous dinosaur. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Right, well, we'll go from large carnivorous uh, dinosaurs to large carnivorous mammals. With uh, This week, uh, Aaron is going to be taking us in his creature feature, the first for a while, to look at sperm whales. So, let's do it. It's the creature feature. Right, so we're into this week's creature feature, and uh, Aaron, you are back after a while. So, um, well, take it away with sperm whales. It's been a while since I've butchered a pronunciation, isn't it? So, mm. yeah, we've been, we've been filling in for you. Don't worry. We've, yeah. we've, we've, we've I've been following along. I've been listening to the episodes. I've been proud of you guys. So, OK, I thought for my return, I would cover one of my favourite animals. This will be quite long winded, partly because I'm out of practice and partly because there is just so much to say about these guys. Put it this way. When you get bored of listening to me about this and the creature feature ends for the week i've only scratched the very 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 tip of the iceberg on on this species so yeah i'm gonna be 
covering the catalot, or as Gareth quite rightly said, it's also known as the sperm whale. Uh, Latin name Ficeta macrocephalus, basically means big head, but we'll get on to that in a minute. So who or what is the catalot? Uh, so the name comes to us via archaic French. It's originally from uh, the Spanish or Portuguese word cachalote, uh, perhaps with kind of Galician and Basque influence. It is generally accepted to mean, as I said, big head, and it's as equally deserved as its other name, which we'll cover in a bit. So they're the only living member of the genus Physeta, a group of toothed whales of which only three members are known. Uh, so you've got the extant catalogue, which is the one we're talking about today, the one that we've still got in our oceans. And then the two extinct ones, which is Physeta anticus, who lived 5.3 to 2.6 million years ago in the Pliocene, found them in France, and Physeta vetus, uh, which lived 2.6 million years ago to 12,000 years ago during the Quaternary. Um, we found those in Georgia. The genus belongs, of course, to the sperm whale family, uh, and we actually have two other species that are known, but they're from a different genus. So that's the, the pygmy sperm whale and the dwarf sperm whale, who belong to the genus Kogia. I think that's right, pronunciation-wise, I mean. As such, the cachalot is the largest of the toothed whales and the largest toothed predator on the planet. Um, we'll get into size in a minute. Quite impressive. They are pelagic marine mammals, which, as the name suggests, means that they exist in the open ocean water column. Uh, interestingly, it might be a topic for a future episode, but ocean waters aren't just divided and named according to their proximity to land, but also their depth from the surface. Sperm whales are nothing if not bloody good divers, so, so it's quite important to kind of know that going into it when you're looking where they exist, where they kind of live. They can be found worldwide, pretty much. In fact, many areas uh, have evidence of, of their existence. But in areas such as like the Mediterranean, they're considered something of a uh, holy grail of whale watching because of their elusive nature, just because not only do they dive really deep, but they dive for a very long time. So mature males, they can grow to about 16 metres, so that's 52 feet, but it is kind of suggested that some may reach 20.7 meters so that's a whopping 68 in length uh, and potentially reaching weights of about 80 tons so for the super pedantic among us drew <laughs> i'm spelling tons 80, 80 tons as t-o-n-n-e-s so thank you very much yep. that's 79 long tons or 88 short tons though i don't know why we don't just have tons and just no deal same. with it yeah that's neither here nor there. The head, as I said, it gives them then the name cachalot, big head. It makes up one third of the animal size. So when you're dealing with an animal about that can reach 68 foot and weigh 80 tons, that's a big head. <laughs> now, the reason I use males as an example of size potential is because they are the most sexually dimorphic species of all cetaceans. The difference between males and females is huge. Whilst they're born the same size, males mature to be around 30 to 50% longer and three times as massive as females. So that, that's huge, a huge difference, especially when you compare them to sexual dimorphism in other species. Interestingly, larger specimens have become rarer due to males being kind of prized and hunted for their size, particularly after World War II, uh, which is interesting. As a side note on, on their appearance, since we're talking about what they look like, Albinos have been found in the wild. So, 
you know, keep them away from Joe Exotic and all his band of vermin. <laughs> if he could have a uh, aquarium, that's what he'd be getting. I've been lucky enough to get involved in some cetacean conservation. I've been out on boats surveying and censusing. And one key ID feature of these guys, because they're so highly sought after and it's so important to correctly ID them, one of these features is the blowhole. Did you guys know that every cetacean species has a uniquely shaped blowhole and thus a unique blow? I knew that sperm whales had one, but I didn't know whether other species did. I did not know that. Yeah, so if you go out whale watching... So they can't, they can't blow into each other's holes? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that would imply that one's hovering wow. above the other upside down. Which... Upside. No, I'm not, I'm, not, However, I'm not interested in logistics. Upside down is <laughs> I mean, actually... I want to see that as much as you do. Yeah. <laughs> upside down is pretty interesting for, the, for this species because it is important, uh, but we'll get on to that in a minute. But yeah, one of the ways that you can ID what species of whale you're looking at is by the blow and the blowhole itself. So there's a couple word of the weeks in there for you guys. You've got blowhole, which is the entry exit point of in the whale's respiratory system, and blow, which is the vapour cloud or the misting that results from the exhale being forced out through the blowhole. And it's that cloud that will first kind of betray the location if you're trying to spot these leviathans at sea. So the blowhole of the sperm whale is s-shaped which is often a surprising fact for people to hear uh, it's also positioned slightly left of center um, which is odd as well and it's this shape that gives the blow its characteristic forward leaning and it kind of leans forward and leftwards by about 45 degrees and somewhat bushy appearance maybe if i can find a video or a photo of this i'll, I'll hook the facebook page up of it so that you guys can see it because it is interesting Another key feature of whale ID is, of course, the fluke. So there's another word of the week. Uh, you might know that the fluke doesn't refer to the tail itself, but the two lobes of the cetacean's tail. So the two kind of side, like paddle-like formations. Uh, in the catalogue, the flukes are triangular and particularly thick. You'll notice that when they go to dive, the catalogs have a distinctive behavior. They raise the fluke really high out of the water before undertaking a deep dive to go on the hunt. So many people will also try and observe cetaceans by trying to spot the dorsal fins. Uh, the catchlock doesn't really have these. Instead, the caudal third of the back displays like a series of ridges, the largest of which is referred to as a hump by whalers. And that, that's another ID thing for, for these guys. They don't really have a dorsal fin as such. And lastly, in terms of trying to ID these wonderful animals, when you think of whales and dolphins, you often think of smooth skin. These guys are much more like raisins, like they've been in the bath too long. They're very, very wrinkly. If you're that close to a catchlock, you may even see the scarring of deep sea battles too. What do I mean by deep sea battles? I don't want to spend too long on this or too long on diet because there's just so much to talk about uh, with these guys. But I'll rattle off a, a quick list for you. So infamously, these guys are locked in in eternal mortal combat with giant squid and colossal squid. You tend to find sucker pad scars on uh, the skin of sperm whales. Uh, they eat many different types of octopus, demersal rays, sable fish, toothfish, uh, megamouth shark, and bioluminescent pyrosomes. The other fish and squid species, that are, they're actually often taken as collateral whilst catching like the first two, really. Now, you said about being upside down. 
hunting actually takes on quite a unique form when these guys are at the seabed. The sperm whales will, will swim upside down so they can spot the silhouette of squid above them before going up to, to catch them. So these guys, they eat about 3% of their body weight per day. Um, and that basically equates to a total annual prey consumption by catchalots worldwide of about 91 million tons. You can compare that to humans who roughly consume about 115 million tons annually of seafood. Uh, so it's, it's quite a large amount that we take too. Sperm whales are one of the most impressive divers in the animal kingdom, reaching depths of about 2,250 metres and staying submerged for 90 minutes. However, some estimates actually place dives at 120 minutes. Uh, it's absolutely mind-blowing. That being said, stomach contents have included species that are found at 3,000 metres. So whilst there's no recorded instance of a sperm whale dive into that depth, we can be somewhat safe in suggesting it's possible. But that is a pressure beyond our most vivid nightmares and our bodies just wouldn't cope uh, under the stresses present in that environment. But quite clearly, catch a lot are built to excel down there. So why is this? Starting with their skeleton, if you have a look at their skeleton and that, at the, the different kind of connections that the ligaments and tendons and muscles make, uh, you can see that a strong yet flexible cartilage is what connects the ribs to the spine. And this allows the bones to collapse uh, as opposed to break under the water pressure. This also allows for the lungs to collapse, reducing nitrogen intake. Metabolism also decreases alongside this uh, so as to conserve oxygen to vital functions. And then once the whale resurfaces, it must allow for about eight minutes of breathing. During this time, the whale will blow or spout six to seven times per minute, reducing to three to five times per minute once they reach their, kind of their resting phase or state. They enjoy the reduced, I'm going to, this is one word I'm definitely going to butcher. They enjoy the reduced zygopaphysical joints of the cetacean spine. And what's left of these can be found slightly higher up and aiding in dorsoventral flexibility. Basically, it stops them from being so flexible side to side and improves their flexibility up and down so that they can swim more powerfully, basically. But don't think that they get away scot-free from a life like this. Research has shown that whilst calves have healthy bones, the skeletons of adults show the very same pitting in the bones as humans do when they've experienced decompression sickness. Uh, this would also indicate that sudden surfacing by sperm whales would have fatal consequences, even though they're pretty much nature's own submarine. Uh, other adaptations that aid in life as a catch-a-lot uh, include the impressively sized heart. It's a whopping... 116 kilograms. This too is adapted for a life of intense pressure. For one thing, the aortic arch increases in diameter as it leaves the heart, basically to maintain a steady blood flow during the dive, because obviously the added pressure on everything would, would affect that. Myoglobin, which is where oxygen is stored in the muscles, it's vastly more present than in terrestrial mammals. And oxygen carrying red blood cells are in higher densities too. And this is all to ensure a supply of haemoglobin to the brain and vital organs when the oxygen levels hit critical uh, during the, the deepest and longest parts of the dives. Another vehicle for oxygen transport, the blood vessels known as, or another word to butcher, rete mirabilia. They are far more complex, extensive and larger than what you find in other cetaceans. Cachalots or sperm whales, they also boast the world's largest brain. It's five times larger than that of a human. 
However, the encephalization quotient, the, the measure of, of relation of brain size to body size, is lower. So the idea that a larger brain means more intelligence might not necessarily be the case. Well, I'd say based on the fact that, you know, politicians apparently have brains doesn't, you know, having a brain doesn't necessarily mean you're intelligent. You've made it unnecessary for me to read my next bullet point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, the olfactory system of the brain is reduced. Thus, sperm whales have a very poor sense of taste and smell. The length of the limbs is also reflected in the size of certain areas of the brain. However, the auditory system is substantially enlarged, which leads us nicely onto echolocation and where the sperm whale uh, earns its name. So you can't discuss echolocation in cachalots without first mentioning spermaceti. It's suggested that the spermaceti actually have a role in buoyancy. However, their main function appears to be to aid in generating and directing powerful and focused clicking sounds. Uh, And I just want to play this for you because this is going to get really interesting in a minute because the clicking of these guys is just insane. So I'm just going to play this for you. Sounds like uh, sounds like my cat when he had Giardia. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it sounds like a car trying to start. It does, it does, but that's been played off my phone, so you're going to have to imagine just how loud that must be being next to it. But like I said, it gets super interesting in a minute uh, about the the clicking. So positioned just above the skull is essentially is a cavity upon which sits a complex system of organs, uh, which are filled with triglycerides, which are fats, and esters, which are waxes. And this is the spermaceti, which gives the cachalots the name sperm whale, because it looks, well, it, it was mistaken for semen. semen we still, har- we still harvested it, though, didn't we? Yeah, still, we still, still loved oh, we still oh, get more of that. It, yeah. um, that whale's head where he's got all his sperm. <laughs> humans are weird things, aren't they? <laughs> We're really yeah. kind of dumb. <laughs> dumb and weird and just not right. I mean, there are uh, so, plenty of other things that they could have probably called it, you know, they could have called it the... Icing. Waxy mass. I- icing whale. Because it <laughs> looks a bit like icing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Gareth, then, are you jizzing on your cakes? <laughs> Why well, never win the British Bake Off? <laughs> just won't let me in. No, not after that time. <laughs> So there's about 1,900 litres of spermaceti held together by the case, which is an extremely tough membrane, which is basically an extremely tough membrane to hold it all together, presumably to withstand the water pressure at near 3,000 metres. Through this mixture, sound can travel 2,684 metres per second. That's twice as fast as it would travel through the bog-standard melon of a, of a dolphin. Melon is actually yet another word of the week I have for you. I'm really trying to spoil you or as I've been away for a while. It's essentially a mass of adipose tissue or body fat found in the foreheads of toothed whales, which acts as a sound lens and focuses their vocalizations. So we can see why the catchalot is also known as the sperm whale, but it gets better. The area below the spermaceti organ is full of compartments of spermaceti separated by cartilage. Can you guess what this might be called? 
No idea? Uh, I'll tell you. It's called The Junk. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, Not only is this organ the counterpart to the aforementioned melon, uh, found in other toothwares, but it also acts as a means to spread physical stresses across the entire skull, which is important because of the water pressure, and it may even protect the head and the organs uh, when sperm whales ram each other or ram other things. Like cap- They're ramming each other with their junk. <laughs> They're ramming each other with the junk. Yeah. Now, the spermaceti is insanely interesting, and I could go on further, but I really want to delve into the echolocation and the vocalizations in which it plays a helpful role. It essentially aids in directing focused beams of broadband clicks. So how that works is air is forced through the phonic lips. It travels backwards along the length of the nose and through the spermaceti organ. It's then reflected off the frontal sac at the cranium and into the melon where it is focused. Some of that sound is reflected through the spermaceti up to three times, and this all happens within milliseconds. So all that's going on whilst they're talking. Now, to hear each other, the sound being received has to enter through the bottom jaw. Uh, So sperm whales will actually turn upside down or turn their side towards their companions so that they can hear them better. In the bottom jaw, there's essentially a continuous fat-filled canal which sends the sound waves to the inner ear really efficiently. Anyway, these clicks, this is the interesting part, they are ridiculously, insanely, unimaginably powerful. And by that, I mean, I'm talking if you were stood in front of Superman and the Incredible Hulk at the same time, and they were both doing that, you know, these two near godlike beings are both facing you and they're both doing that seismic clap that they do with their hands and it sends out the shock waves but they're doing that at a faster rate than an audience is applauding and it like oh the the repetitions are bloody fast if you think that would turn you to mush then you're thinking along the right path for sperm whale clicks because i'm not joking they will click you silly with their incredible voice in terms of (laughs) in terms of decibels you can't wait to be clicked Oh, can't we look silly? <laughs> In terms of decibels, these guys are the loudest animals on Earth at 236 decibels. We currently understand that they can hear each other over thousands of miles away, but researchers are actually beginning to believe that they can keep in contact with each other from the other side of the planet. Uh, that's how powerful these clicks are and that how well just be infuriating. Do, do, yeah, do you reckon it could circumnavigate the globe in itself, the clicks? <laughs> the thing that they end up talking to themselves. Yeah. <laughs> It's oh, you. again. He won't shut. He won't oh. shut. <laughs> Eric, I keep talking. I hear him. Yeah. Oh God, there he is again. Oh no, that's that seen our Grandpa Joe. He's going <laughs> on about his bloody veranda again. He's in the Atlantic. I'm in the Pacific. This is ridiculous. Oh, he's complaining about other sperm whales coming in here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's the weather like? I don't care. It's wet. It's always wet. It's always wet in the sea. <laughs> anyway, the clicks. You can probably imagine what I'm going to say about this. The clicks, if you intercept them, they would easily lay waste to your eardrums. They can actually give your eardrums a blowout just by hearing them. And we're going to play it for you now. (laughs) Turn your speakers up, everyone. (laughs) Get them on the subwoofer in your car. (laughs) Don't do that. And if you do, don't at me. We're also not actually going to play it. They'll be deaf afterwards. They They won't be able to know what we've said. 
Well, if you're unlucky, that's if you're lucky. If you're unlucky, it will vibrate you to death. It, it actually will. Oh, right. It's incredible. Has, it, has anyone actually ever died by being vibrated to death by a sperm whale? Or... I tried to look into this and I couldn't find it. But what I can tell you is two really cool things. Firstly, researchers who study sperm whales, they can't, um, you can't do it with a submarine or a submersible. It freaks them out. It scares them. And you can't do it with scuba diving gear. Apparently, it's too loud. And again, they won't come near you. However, if you go free diving to research them, they are apparently, according to... So I, I looked into lots of articles. I looked into websites. I looked at uh, ocean-based conservation charities. I looked at videos on YouTube. And um, one of the videos goes into... It doesn't go into a lot of depth, but the details it does give are fascinating. And one of, one of the researchers who was hosting this talk said that team members that he worked with or knew had reported increases in their body temperature purely from the energy that they were being hit with whilst essentially yeah (laughs) in fact the host actually relates another story which i think is really cool so one of the catalogs was swimming towards a researcher and the researcher put his hand out to stop the whale colliding with him like to push himself away from the whale as it passed Mm. and the clicks hit his arm and it paralyzed his hand for four hours. Oh, wow. <laughs> they, these guys can damage you just by speaking, just by saying hello to you. Yeah. They can. They hello. Can oh, so much damage. <laughs> um, Every time we say hello. And, uh, I, and speaking is, is actually key here. Moves me on to my next point nicely. The aforementioned video also goes on to talk about how these clicks are not just for echolocation, but also it's potentially one of the most incredibly sophisticated forms of communication on earth, potentially more sophisticated than human language. Now, this is backed up by some science here. It's backed up by a substantially sized neocortex, about six times larger than ours. And this is an area of the brain that's associated with conscious thought, future planning, and you guessed it, language. They also have a vast amount of spindle cells, and these are associated uh, in neurology with compassion, love, suffering, and indeed speech. Uh, So to put this into context, like I said, their neocortex is six times larger than ours. Their spindle cells, as I said, they're in far larger quantity than ours. And to quote the researcher, they've had these advantages for 15 million years longer than we have. So I think there's a strong argument to say that they, that this could be, uh, in in effect, a, a communication that would rival or, or a language that could rival ours. But yeah, so that that's the end. This has been a long creature feature. But as a return to the podcast and a true citizen of the ocean, I do hope it has been an interesting deep dive into arguably one of the most intensely fascinating animals that we share this planet with. Yep. Deep dive. No, that was that was really good. Do you guys have any questions that I can try and answer? Mm. Other than can they microwave a human, that's pretty much been, uh, you know, answered there. I, I got to admit, they're one of those groups of whales that I would love to see in the wild. Although now I don't think I want to go in the water with them. So one of the times <laughs> I did get involved with some marine conservation, we went out on a ferry from Barcelona overnight to La Palma, and and then back again the very next morning. And the whole point of it was we were basically censusing the Balearic region of the mediterranean to find what um what cetaceans are using it we saw some uh, some incredible stuff like um 
is it sunfish? I think the, the big disc fish that nice. yeah. mm. they're incredible and they get they get far bigger than people actually appreciate. One of them uh, actually broke a ship in Sydney Harbour. Wow. In the thirties, um, I think it was. Saw sixty odd common dolphin. This that that was in different pods, but one pod of eighty bottlenose dolphins. That are just an army of them, or or a naval armada, we should say. Mm. Um, so that was incredible, and we saw seven fin whales. One of which was a calf that was only our guide was telling us that reckons he was only like a couple of weeks old. He was the size of a of a Ferrari, like a huge baby. But we never saw a sperm whale, and they were telling us, like, when I said that they're the holy grail of whale watching uh, and cetacean census, in that was a line that he gave me and and, and the people with me because they just they know that they're there, but they never see them. So yeah, oh. I would love to see them. They're, they're up. There. I know it's it's popular to hate on orca, but orca are like the, my third most desired sighting for like whales. Uh, are they after? Probably blue whale in second place and sperm whale in first place, just because sperm whale are so so hard to find. Yeah, I wrote down a couple of words from your uh, your creature feature. This was my taking from it. I wrote down phonic lips, spermaceti, junk blow, click silly, <laughs> vibrated to death. <laughs> it is by far the most suggestive uh, creature feature, I think. It, it is. I also, I just want to give an honourable mention to the return of the clicker clock. Oh, oh yes, I enjoyed, I enjoyed that yeah. as well. Not to take away from you know the, your creature <laughs> at all, but I, I enjoyed that popping in as well. That's why you had someone asking where I was and, and if I was coming back. Yeah, they're they like, "Where's the cookie?" It's got nothing to do with yeah. me. Cuckoo clock aficionados absolutely love it when you're uh, you're on the podcast, Aaron. Do, have I actually explained it? Because it's it's actually made. You of, have explained it. Yeah, it's made, made of, of wood. Cookie. It's handmade. Oh. It's like artisanal handmade in Germany by people that hand make cuckoo clocks it's 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 a really special piece mm. Mm. right well we'll go from I don't know why they don't do catalog clocks wake you up with a microwaving click <laughs> that i don't <laughs> sell as well yeah seven uh... o'clock arise <laughs> they'll vibrate you to death <laughs> the whole bed collapses yeah i don't i don't think they're gonna sell anywhere near as well sorry anyway, i couldn't come to work today i got click silly <laughs> we'll move on from our our clicking silly mammal to um in fact well we're going to be talking about whales as well in this as well we're going to move on to our word of the week which is uh, all about ungulates it's word of the week okay well, we're into this week's word of the week uh, and this week is well we're doing the word ungulate which uh, some of you probably heard before. It's a word that refers to um, two very large groups of animals, uh, of mammals uh, across the planet. And uh, essentially, ungulate itself comes from the, um, the Latin for hoof. So uh, it's broken then into two big groups, and we're going into both of them. One of them has got far more in it than you would think, and one of them has well, far less in it than the other one. The first one is the artiodactyls, which are known as the even-toed ungulates. It's a huge group. It includes everything from giraffe and camels through to cows and any kind of cattle that you can think of, ruminant animals, sheep, pigs, deer, hippos as well. And believe it or not, well, just the animals that we were mentioning before, the whales are also in there as well, including uh, all the dolphins, toothed whales, 
and um, the baleen whales as well. Uh, in fact, Aaron is going to tell us a little bit about the fact that whales are actually hoofed animals. They may not look like it, but they are very much. Shut well, the front door. I know. That's what happens if you don't shut the front door. They get out yeah. and they evolve into, into whales. Yeah, so, so essentially the closest living relative to whales and dolphins is actually, surprisingly, hippos. Now, hippos likely evolved from a group of anthracotheres about 15 million years ago, and the first whales evolved over 50 million years ago. But the ancestor of both these groups was terrestrial. Uh, the first whale, not the first whale as we would recognise, but the first kind of step along the evolutionary line towards what we know of as whales was a, a creature called Pachycetus. And they were quite bog-standard, typical land mammals from the time. You're thinking... A bit like a dog. I was about to say, yeah, you're, you're basically thinking of about a goat-sized dog. And slowly they became... They became... They they adapted... Sorry for all the stuttering, guys. Oh, well, I did you out. Don't worry about it. Large, powerful <laughs> tails, shorter legs, fat pad uh, in the jaw for hearing started delving into brackish habitats whereas before Pachycetus uh, in the Hyrus uh, and the others and, and the ones that indeed became the hippopotamuses and, uh, and such they were kind of semi-aquatic freshwater creatures uh, then if you move further on through the evolutionary line you start getting into saltwater habitat and they're now starting to look a little bit like a mammalian a mammalian crocodile type kind of body shape like dolphin crocodile kind of hybrid they then and the nasal opening starts to shift back and the eyes start to move to the side of the head tail flukes begin to appear as you go more and more recent for lack of a better word very small hind limbs they're now pretty much useless uh the nasal opening shifts even further back and then you start to get almost the animals that we'd recognize so then you start to get Odontocetes, and they develop the uh, echolocation for hunting, and Mysticetes, which develops baleen for filtering food. And at this point, both of these evolutionary lineages completely lose their hind limbs. Uh, the nasal opening reaches the position of the blowhole in the animals that we see living around us today, and they look far more like the toothed whales and the baleen whales that we'd, we'd know. I have sent an infographic to the guys for them to have a look at and familiarise yourselves with. You can see the line that becomes the whales and you can see that hippopotamus uh, is on a completely separate line, but connected by a common a common ancestor. I think it's probably worth chucking these infographics up on the, uh, mm -hmm. up on the Facebook. So, yeah, whales once walked on four legs and they were freshwater semi-aquatic beasts. And more importantly, members of the artiodactyls. In fact, indeed. they evolved very quickly in uh, roughly about 10 million years to go from four-legged, hoofed, carnivore-looking creatures to completely aquatic animals like Bacillosaurus, which is a completely aquatic marine whale, in about 10 million years um, during the Eocene period. So they became very successful very, very quickly. Unfortunately, though, although possibly fortunately, there was also a big bunch of carnivorous hoofed mammals as well. Things like Andrewosarcus, which was a huge carnivorous animal that looked a bit like a wolf, 
but uh, was oh, nowhere yes. near related and was actually known as a hoofed mammal um, and was more closely related to sheep than it was to wolves. So uh, there's that a where lineage the... that disappeared. Sorry. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut over you. I That's just right. wanted to quickly interject. Is that where the Terminator pig, the Deodon, exists? Is that where that no, is no. positioned? Entelodonts are far, far different. They are nowhere near related. They are members of the pig okay. family. Um, okay. pigs, pigs being artiodactyls as well, basically started to play around with it. In fact, pigs were some of the first artiodactyls to evolve. So they're one of those first groups. Camelids as well were another very early group of artiodactyls. And then, yeah, the, the whales basically came from these hoofed carnivores that we no longer have. That entire lineage just is no longer with us anymore. So, yeah. Which is a bit of a shame because they're, they're fascinating animals. Indeed. If I could just, not to derail this too far, but I, since we've got a little bit of a whale theme going today, I mentioned baleen. For those that don't know, a, a small, tiny word of the week, baleen is, is the brush-like formation of teeth that you find in humpback whales and blue whales that allow them to filter creatures like plankton and that in itself is a uh, a completely bizarre origin of its evolution as well hmm. and we go to the other side of the ungulate family tree now with it's a lot smaller this side it's the uh, perisodactylia which is the odd toed ungulates so it's a lot smaller this particular group it certainly is these days because a lot of their family offshoots have all gone extinct it's everything from tapirs and horses right the way through to rhinos which you know is, is a lot smaller than the artiodactyls but these ones have an odd number of toes on their feet usually five some of them have slightly less um, but they are still in that same family and in fact hooves uh, of horses have gone to the ultimate of reduction in fact they are walking around on their middle finger <laughs> and I'm currently showing the other two a middle finger. Thank you. <laughs> what a horse would be walking on. That is um, just like the whales in artiodactyls. Horses in um, perisodactyls have got these two fantastic sort of straight lines that show a progression of these, these two families to a, sort of a point. The, the whales evolving from land living creatures to being completely aquatic and the horses evolving from having five toes on each foot to only having one toe on each foot but this is also that family is also home to the largest land mammals that have ever existed as well the um the indrinkotheres things like parasitherium which is a giant rhino relative um which once used True, to like in Ma uh, mongolia you're the parasitherium fan aren't you i double <laughs> you dabble in indrinkotheres. <laughs> yeah, not, not that anyone wouldn't be. No, no, it's pretty good. I do like. Yeah, I do like. Quite them. fond of them, aren't you? It's there like a, a it's like a giraffe hippo, isn't it? Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I I tend to think of it more as just someone's taken a rhino, taken the horn off. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I meant giraffe. A, I meant giraffe rhino. I don't know why. I said crossed it with a giraffe. Yeah. There is a fantastic life size sculpture that is in a museum somewhere that I've seen. I think it's in Russia. And it, yeah. it just really shows the size of these animals. They were impressive. They'd make a full-grown African elephant look tiny. You know, mm. these were the this is as big as a mammal can get. They can't get any bigger unless they're in the water. But again, um, very unfortunate we don't have any around. Well, they disappeared a very long time ago, long before humans even got yeah, close yeah. to being a species. So uh, it's one that we can thankfully claim that we didn't wipe out. 
Mm. <laughs> Which is always nice to think of. But, Drew, you've got the other group that most people would think, well, hang on, where are the elephants? Well, where are the elephants? Where I are mean, they? In... Where the heck are these elephants? <laughs> uh, they're, in, they're in their own group, basically. Yeah, elephants are, are not hoofed mammals. Uh, they're not ungulates. So they're in the order Proboscidae. And so if, uh, if you branch out a little bit further, you have the closest living relevant, uh, relatives to elephants today are things like dugong, sea cows, and hyraxes, rock hyraxes, which look very, very similar to rodents. But yes, despite looking a bit hoofy, elephants are, are not ungulates at all. And they do not belong to this family. Well, there we go. I mean, I think that's a fairly comprehensive look at the, uh, the ungulate family which includes everything from water-living whales right the way through to uh, land-living giant rhinos. but <laughs> Not land-living giant elephants. No, unfortunately not. Or any elephant. But, uh, yeah, we'll go from uh, our word of the week this week now into our emails. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into our mailbag section of the show. And this week we said we were going to get to uh, some big questions. Well... Drew, do you want to start us off with that nice quick one that we uh, we had sort of come in? Yes. So we've got a quite a quick, easy question from uh, our friend Dan, Dan Loisietti. And Dan asked, where can the missus and I go to see Jaguars in the UK? So, yeah, okay. pretty quick and easy. Aaron, do you want to get this as your yeah, big sure. cat boy? So there's, there's a few places you can go. I would recommend Chester. It's a very good zoo, uh, both in terms of captive collection and in terms of what they do in the wider scheme of things however i would also suggest that you go and visit paradise wildlife park they don't have any jaguars with them at the moment however if i've got my facts right that's the big cat enclosure that they are kind of scrapping and redoing they've just done the lions and the tigers and the new big cat enclosures are fantastic as paradise wildlife park uh near london they really are really pushing the boat out when it comes to big cat enclosures and i kind of know loosely know their uh, their big cat team and as trainers and as like zookeepers their husbandry and their training is just amazing it's so good uh, there you go dan you've got two sides of the country there you either got north london or <laughs> north uh, northwest uh, yeah all, all the northwest and chester um the chester one's good as well because it's got uh slots in that same building Yes. definitely, and a fantastic aquarium in that bit as well. Just another point on Chester as well is one thing that I do like about their their jaguar setup is at least last time I went, they had one melanistic jaguar and one base normal yes. jaguar, uh, which is really cool to see them side by side, so you can see what the differences are and stuff. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll go from our our jaguar question to the second half of a question that we got asked, which we put aside for for this week's email. So, Drew, if you'd like to take it away. Yeah, so it's a follow-up to Jess's question about our sort of influences. And we did talk about this guy briefly during that. But basically, the question is, so Steve Irwin was slash is a huge influence, especially for children. But looking at his shows now, his techniques are very invasive to wild animals and his zoo still walks tigers and hand-raised animals that don't need to be for educational purposes. So, Jess's question is, how much innocently intended wild animal bothering and tiger walking displays should be allowed for the sakes 
of inspiring and educating future generations in an age of constant change and improvement to welfare and zoo standards. So we should be able to get this through in a few nice seconds. Quick. One, one <laughs> yeah. sentence, really. It's Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, who wants to go first on this? I'm happy to, to try. Take it away. Yeah, go on. This is definitely a minefield, um, yeah. a minefield topic, and I'm going to upset people either way. Nice. So, firstly, I think That's it's very like. main, mainstream, hip, and perceived cool to hate on Steve Irwin today. Oh. And I think that is something that I find in my profession as well. People think it's the edgy thing to, to hate Steve Irwin. And to be brutally honest, I think that hate is incredibly misplaced. So, if you imagine a young child who is uh, currently learning about animals... We all like to sing the praises of David Attenborough for good reason. He's fantastic. He's never going to be replaceable at all by anyone. It, like Those are big shoes to fill. However, for a little kid, he's not going to grab the attention and the inspiration uh, yep. of, of the average child. Now, if I was to answer your, your first question last week, I would have listed David Attenborough because that's who my mum and dad got me into. And, and there is an element of that to, to all kids. But... Not all kids are like me. Not all kids are like Gareth or Drew. They're just not going to be able to sit still that long. Steve Irwin had an animation and a charisma about him and a love and enthusiasm about the wildlife uh, and, and habitats and conservation that would be very difficult to replicate for anybody. Almost as difficult to replicate as replicating the love and affection that David Attenborough pours into his. Mm -hmm. Difference is, Steve Irwin is the gateway drug to conservation. You get hooked on Steve Irwin, and then as you get older and you mature, you move on to the harder drug that is David Attenborough. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just how the, the conservation addiction goes, and I don't think anyone should take that away from Steve Irwin, either because of the manner of his death, which some may argue was inevitable, or um, the way he was. Now, I also want to point out that it was very over-exaggerated, very over-exaggerated what he used to do. All these jokes about, it's creep up behind this cloud of dragon and pokey with a stick. That's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. He got too close. He got chased. He climbed up a tree and looked very, very silly. And he told the world pretty much how silly he was for doing it. Yes, the individual animals that he picked up might have been wound up, might have been bothered. But for what? All of five minutes at most, probably, to take a, uh, one take or two takes, maybe three takes at most. It wouldn't have lasted long. And then that snake gets to sliver off, that bug gets to creep off, the croc gets to go off and carry on with its, its happy life. Meanwhile, kids everywhere are glued to their screens, loving every second of it. And then they get into David Attenborough, who tells you just how dire this planet is in. I think the world needed Steve Irwin when he was here. It's a shame that he's not here anymore, but anyone that tries to do Steve Owen now will be doing it, in my opinion. They, they would be doing him an injustice because it would come from a, a level of, uh, of ego, I think, just trying to be around the animals. And Steve wasn't about that. That being said, I'm now going to upset all his fans because there is absolutely no need for Rob Irwin. As I have, may I just say, I have the utmost respect for Rob and, and yeah. Bindi. They are fantastic ambassadors for zoos, for conservation, and for the animals they care for. Mm -hmm. And also, their their talks are 
informative, passionate and enthusiastic. And that is something that zookeepers lack on a very wide scale. The ability to interface with the public on a level that keeps people entertained and gets them educated uh, whilst, whilst doing so. However, there's no need for it to go on the way that it has gone on. But my bigger problem, that's kind of a, a minor problem. My biggest problem is when they hired Giles Clark to come in and do the Tigers about the house, all that, taking tiger cubs away from mums just because you want to bottle feed them and and hand rear them so that you can go in there and do your, your shows with them. There's far better ways to deal with tigers. There's far better ways. This is not a rabbit that you're having on your lap. This is not a an ambassador animal. This is a tiger. Tigers, in my opinion, should never be used as ambassador animals. Just to clear up, an ambassador animal, because any animal in a zoo is an ambassador, Ambassador animal specifically means an animal that is taken out to meet public or, or is uh, involved in a show of some kind, maybe not with the public, but in that kind of uh, free contact kind of kind of manner. So with no safety protection. And I, I watched Tigers about the house and I just thought it is unnecessary nonsense. And the fact that it's going on at Steve Owens is shocking, really. But yeah, there it is. I think you've said pretty much everything yeah. that I would like to say, to be honest, and probably better. <laughs> so, yeah. I, again, you can you can call it sort of animal bothering, but as as Aaron said, it's, it's so, so, so engaging, particularly for for people who are have got a little bit less of an attention span. And I think also your point about him having no ego is really, really significant too. Uh, I don't want to, I just want to, I want to highlight that. Yeah. Yeah, I want to highlight that because there's so many egos in conservation now, and they are, and it really hurts. It, it really hurts the uh, that overall effort. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you can him going out and sort of, you know, getting up close and personal with a, a scorpion to show to show it off to the world. Mm-hmm. Is that scorpion going to be a bit stressed by that? Yeah, a little bit. But stress is it is a natural thing, and it isn't always bad either. It only becomes unhealthy when it's for an extended period of time or if it's constant. A little bit of stress is actually quite healthy. And he would only bother it or something for a couple of minutes, as Aaron said. And that it just goes back to its day. Uh, it's the same as when we use animals, as Aaron uh, said, for ambassador animals. We'd, we would use those animals in talks, either for people, you know, just to have a quick look at. And those animals in that sort of two-minute window, one-minute, two-minute window, probably mm-hmm. a little bit on edge. You know, they don't, they don't necessarily want be there if as long as if obviously animals that are being trained for a sort of positive reinforcement sort of show they come to that out of their own will the animal does go back straight into its enclosure after those couple of minutes a few seconds maybe in some cases and just goes about its day and i think a really important thing to bear in mind with this sort of thing is that animals always live in the present once they're back in their enclosure or once they're back out in the wild or their safe space wherever they're not thinking about that mildly stressful experience that they've just had Mm. they're not bothering about that it's done they just carry on with their lives uh, and i think that's something that we can take from animals as well as as a species i think it's very important to live in the present and not worry and dwell about the past and the future which is you know animals don't do that this stressful experience is i really want to highlight the fact that it, it is really minimal impact to their lives i just wanted to add one thing just one hmm. thing real quick talks that i've seen not talks but the conversations that i've seen online where people are hating on him, the lengths that they're going to disparage his legacy. 
literally look at a map of of uh, Australia and you'll see his legacy. There are places, national parks named after him. There are yep. there are places that are protected because of him. If you want to hate on a zoo-based entity or a zoo-based ego who is damaging conservation and animal bothering, look no further than Sean Ellis Wolfman, Craig Bush the Lion Man, and Joe Exotic the Tiger King. Indeed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, well, I mean, there's plenty of egos out there to choose from. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Steve isn't one of them. Yeah. I mean, I think I touched on it last week, the saying is watching his shows very much made me want to go out and look you know, for all of the smaller, the the far less well represented animals. Yeah, I mean, everyone living in Australia, you you'd see a kangaroo at some point or another. You know, mm. it's it's like seeing a deer here. It's it at some point you're going to see one at the side of the road. Unfortunately, sometimes you'd see a dead one at the side of the road, but you'd still see one. But seeing you know a huntsman spider or a redback spider or you know just some sort of species of of lizard. That that was the ones that most people would never see, and those are the ones that you have to try and get that love for in people, trying to get them to not even like, just tolerate, because those are the ones that people will go and kill. You don't see someone bashing a wallaby to death because it's got into their house, but you'll see someone bashing a spider to death because it's dared to come into their house. They're the ones that need the protection. They're the ones that need the... um that real sort of passion driven into people to mm-hmm. uh, to want to protect because you you can show someone a picture of a wallaby and it could be the ugliest wallaby on the planet. I'm picking on wallabies here. I don't know why, but um, it could be the ugliest wallaby that has attacked loads of people, but people will still instantly love it and prefer it over looking at a snake because they assume the snake is evil and out to bite them and kill them and is highly dangerous. And when in fact the snake does thing. more good for mm. for people than the wallaby does, so yeah, yeah. I think we've learned I, from this is I, I've I've got a hatred of wallabies. Uh, yeah, I, I think know. I think that's that's my takeaway. <laughs> I'm from picking this. on the you, you are you are right. He is a uh, hero for the young sung heroes. He did highlight a species I, that don't get enough highlighting. I would, I would say that a lot of the people who are probably online and being very very vocal about disliking Steve Irwin probably weren't of an age to have even been able to watch Steve Irwin no. when he was around. And to be fair, he has he, he does have a he does have a lot of backing still. Because again oh, yes. Petter Petter released uh, oh we haven't actually mentioned Petter, I don't think, in this Oh god, let's not go down that rabbit hole. They are they're they're pieces of shit. But anyway, uh, he <laughs> <laughs> they 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 attacked him uh, over the Stingray thing, I think, over, over his death and the amount of backlash that they got from that was incredible. It may, I mean, to be honest, they probably did it just, you know, because any sometimes is, any, any publicity is good. I um, will say it was heartwarming to see the amount of support he got. Yeah, it really did. Because they chose the anniversary of his death to yeah, bring out to that, do it. that. And it was it just shows Petter for the type of people, the type the of petty type of people. That they are. <laughs> oh. Obi-Wan yeah. said it best, you'll never find a more wretched hybrid. <laughs> So, as a conclusion, then, so how much innocently intended wild animal bothering and tiger walking displays should be allowed for the sake of inspiring and educating future generations? No tiger we... walking. No tiger walking. No. Yeah. None. No. But uh, animal I'm bothering. I'm saying that as a tiger keeper or mm. tiger fan. I would say that some amount of bothering by him was acceptable because yep. he 
inspired an awful lot, and he didn't kill anything in the process. No, exactly. Um, so yeah, or he harm anything. Yeah, it, it's it is it is pretty much harmless because there's no lasting damage there whatsoever at all. Yeah, yeah, very true. Right. Well, before we move on from that question entirely, can I mm. very briefly just mention a couple names in answer to Jess's question last week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you mentioned the really wild show of Michaela Strachan, Terry Nutkins, and that. So I won't cheat yes. and say Michaela Strachan, but one person. Not so much when I was growing up, but during my early 20s, I think it was, maybe mid-20s, was uh, Liz Bonin. Mm. Now, I did lose a little bit of respect for her when she went publicly attacked zoos. She basically blanketed us as all Mm. all was pretty much the same thing, which I felt was unfair and poorly informed. However, I thoroughly enjoyed a documentary uh, documentary series, I think, that she did on Tigers, very good. And I've enjoyed her body of work for the most part. Very cool. And the other person who I'm surprised neither of you mentioned was Gordon Buchanan. I really like Gordon Buchanan. Oh, yes. Far more than... The the list is quite extensive of people who I think we could have have mentioned. Uh, Yes, I, I agree. Yeah. Right, well, that pretty much brings us to the end of most of our questions, although we've got one quick interlude... In fact, it's a reply to a, an email that we had, an email for our guest host last week. So I'll just quickly pass it to our, our guest host from last week. Um, I just wanted to say a big thank you to one of the podcast fans for sending me an email, especially for me, after I was a guest in last week's podcast. Um, it was lovely to hear from someone else who's as passionate about animals and Star Trek. Um, mm. I only hope to have such a career as yours. So thank you. Oh, there we go. I believe that was uh, Louise O'Leary who sent that one uh, in mm-hmm. for, for us. Uh, and at some point, you're going to end up having to watch that Star Trek episode as well. Um, yes. To, uh, to try and spot the bush that she is whilst holding a tiger. So, <laughs> that was a very interesting email to have read. But yeah, that pretty much brings us to the end of our, our emails for this week. Uh, and in fact, brings us to the end of this week's show as well. So if you want to get in contact with us, uh, like the various people who have got in contact with us as well, whether you're saying that you are a bush holding a tiger in the background of a Star Trek episode, or what your thoughts on Steve Irwin are, um, you can do by sending us an email at thenathistorycovered at gmail.com. You can also um, see what's going on on our Twitter and Facebook pages, where we've got loads of different things going up all the time. Um, We'll put all the articles up as well. Our Twitter handle is at nhcovered. But remember, if you liked what you've heard, um, you can leave us a review. You can subscribe on whatever podcasting service you're listening to. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, all that sort of thing. Shout it to the rooftops. In fact, this week, we just picked up our first Mexican and Polish listeners. So welcome to Mexico and Poland. But that pretty much brings me to uh, the end of this week's episode. And in fact, a big thank you to uh, you guys. Big thank you to you, uh, Aaron, for coming back. Thank you for having me back. It's, uh, I've missed it's all right. You know? we, we weren't not going to have you back. No, we weren't. No. <laughs> I mean, you, you lived down the road. It would have been, yeah, we would, would have been knocking at some you. point. <laughs> we'd have found you. <laughs> uh, and a big thank you to you as well, Drew. You're welcome. Welcome as always. And of course, that brings me to... Whale some... come. Oh, dear. We were talking a lot about that today. <laughs> There's spermaceti everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> That just leaves me to say a big thank you to you for listening at home. 
Uh, and we will see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Bye. I have two this week. Oh, no good. Mas Mutantes for our Mexican viewers or listeners. And, oh, God. <laughs> Niji Whiskey Mutantwal. Was that Polish, was it? Was that, that was Polish? my attempt at Polish. We okay. can only apologise to we, our sorry, Mexican Putin. Polish we, listeners. It was nice lost. having you. It was, yeah. <laughs> Mutantal. Well, there you we'll go. end on that. Yeah, no we'll mass <laughs> I'm trying to be inclusive. <laughs>